Welcome to the Power Trends Podcast, produced by the New York Independent System Operator, where we discuss energy planning, public policy, and other issues affecting New York's power grid. Welcome to episode 15 of the Power Trends Podcast. Today we're welcoming Ann Reynolds, Executive Director of the Alliance for Clean Energy in New York, ACE for short. And we today are going to talk about your organization's involvement in putting together the grid of the future and focus on renewables. So welcome to the Power Trends podcast. Thanks so much. It's fun to be here. And a little bit about your background here. Before you began work leading ACE, you spent some years at the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation in various different roles. Prior to that, you covered air and energy issues for Environmental Advocates of New York. Before that, you were at the TELUS Institute for Energy and Environmental Strategies in Boston and at the US EPA Region 2 in New York City. And you hold a master's in environmental studies from Yale and a BS in biology and environmental studies from Tufts University. And so let's talk about your leadership at ACE. And maybe you can walk the audience through cross-section of the membership, what you're focused on these days, maybe how it's changed since you arrived in 2014. Is that right? Yep. Yeah, I came here in 2014, although ACE has been around since 2006, so this year is our 15th year anniversary. And we have grown over that time, but actually stayed pretty true to our original mission, which was to represent the clean energy industry, renewable energy companies, and trying to get those companies to successfully invest in New York and create renewable electricity. And I want to dive right in with your role. You were named to the Climate Action Council which is charged with putting together and overseeing the process of a scoping plan, which will help govern and direct the state and efforts to reach the climate and decarbonization and renewable goals set up under the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. So if we can focus on that experience, you've been working since the beginning of the year with the other council members listening to and digesting a lot of information that's coming out of the various different panels, including the PowerGen panel, which our own Emily Nelson sits on. So if you could describe that experience so far, some of the takeaways, maybe some things that you've learned. Well, I was very happy and honored to be appointed to the Climate Action Council by the New York State Senate. It's been a good experience so far. I've been impressed with how much uh, they've accomplished and how much the state team is working on things, is dedicated to it, even in the midst of the pandemic. You know, they didn't miss a beat in terms of continuing to meet and meet more and more frequently. It's illustrated how many moving parts there are to this puzzle to get New York to achieve the really, really ambitious climate goals that are included in the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. It's daunting. It's very daunting when you go through all of this information and you understand how much New York is going to have to do to meet not just the renewable electricity goals by 2030 and 2040, but the economy-wide greenhouse gas emissions goals by 2050. In fact, that's where it gets really challenging because you're talking about basically electrifying nearly all transportation and nearly all buildings. And that's obviously going to have huge impacts on the electric sector, but it's just a a sea change in how we live and move in the state. So there's, <laughs> there's going to have to be a lot that happens over the next uh, 20, 25 years to put us on that right path. But I've been impressed by the level of conversation, the level of analysis, and the resources that the state has dedicated to the whole planning exercise. 
Is there one or a couple things that through that process and, and the various different meetings stand out to you as really the, the focal points of the challenge, maybe something that surprised you? You've been involved in this industry and, as you put it earlier, watching the progression of the state's climate policy broadly. Was there anything through the process and listening to the various different panels and also guests that presented that jumped out at you um, or surprised you? Well, I hope this doesn't come across as a complaint, but I think it's one of the surprising things is how the group collectively seems to take the fact that we'll get a lot of renewables built almost for granted. So it's almost like, okay, we have to build a huge amount of wind and solar, moving on to the next challenge. And I feel like we do still have a lot of challenges to getting the, that renewable energy built, getting it permitted, getting it cited, getting it taxed, getting it interconnected. And we really, um, we have to tackle all of those nuts and bolts issues in order to get to 70% renewables by 2030. A lot of the controversy, if, if you call it that, on the Climate Action Council has been concerns with out-year questions that are extremely important. I'm not arguing that they're not important, but they're a long ways out from where we are now. So I have been surprised by almost the assumption that we're good on constructing renewables for electricity production. Let's solve the other issues. But maybe it's because we have made so much progress in getting a lot of renewables under contract and getting there to be more public acceptance of renewable energy. I think the other thing that is, I wouldn't say surprising, it's just I've been able to dedicate more attention to it is the, the questions of building decarbonization and the enormous challenge in getting New York's existing building stocks to fully electrify. Now, from the ISO point of view, that's going to have big implications for energy demand and will our peak shift from summer to winter? So there's important questions there. But there are also those questions of will New Yorkers be willing to make that change and make that transition? And how can we collectively convince them that it's something that needs to be done uh, because the law requires it? There's um, a lot of very meaty recommendations that have been put before the Climate Action Council pages and pages of great ideas and analysis. And what's going to happen over the summer is what they're calling the integration analysis. So they're going to put all of these recommendations together and see what the emissions reductions would be from that whole suite of policies, and then do a societal cost benefit assessment on those whole suite of recommendations. And then we'll hopefully the result of that will be a scoping plan. But I do think even when that scoping plan is done as a final draft and it begins its year-long tour around New York to get public input and get finalized, I think a lot of the recommendations are going to be still, if not at the 10,000-foot level, at the 1,000-foot level. So I don't think that the Climate Action Council should be the ones to define what those dispatchable zero-emissions technologies are for the future but should recommend some policies to encourage pilot projects, R&D, maybe incentives for commercialization, demonstration projects in New York. So that can begin to be worked out. But I don't actually think that the council itself should dictate what those technologies should be. Do you want to offer some thoughts on the public policy transmission planning process for offshore wind here? You mentioned the bulk system and you know, of course, we're going to have to build out the transmission system to onshore all that wind. Uh, is, in your opinion, that moving along 
quick enough? It hasn't been moving along, but I'm optimistic that it will now. I mean, it was clear, it is clear, if you just look at a map of New York and New Jersey and our coastline, that if we had some sort of offshore mesh system or a backbone, it probably would be more efficient um, and cost-effective, especially if we're going to go beyond 9,000 megawatts of offshore wind. But there were a few things holding that back. It was sort of a chicken and the egg scenario where we needed to get some projects under contract so that we're competing in a sense with other states for those lease areas that already exist. And we needed to get some projects contracted so we would understand where they would be and because so we could start moving. At the same time, we were waiting for the federal government to establish new offshore wind energy areas, and it didn't make sense to plan an offshore grid or backbone or mesh system before we knew where they were going to be. But there was a big milestone last week that the federal government issued a proposed sale notice. So they should be doing an auction of eight new lease areas, hopefully by the end of the calendar year. And to me, that then opens up some hopefully rapid activity on the part of uh, the Department of Public Service and the ISO and other states to see if we should have more coordination there on an offshore system. And that would be a public policy transmission need. Whether it would be a FERC Order 1000 process or not, I don't know, because it would be more than one RTO potential, you know, or state. So it's a complicated thing, but you just have to look at a map to see that is probably a common sense approach. What do you hear from your solar companies and members? Are there different priorities? Are they the same? Is transmission one of those things that stands out as a priority that they want more focus on? Or are there other items that you know, are distinct? From an ISO perspective, the issues are pretty much the same. Um, transmission constraints, uh, worries about curtailment in the future, or the you know renewable generation load pockets that you've identified, and, and will those renewables be bottled in the future? The length of time of the interconnection process and the uncertainty about what the interconnection costs will be. And those are the types of things they worry about. The major difference between solar and wind is outside of ISO issues in terms of siting. You know, I think that there was some, what I believe to be naivete about, well, wind is controversial for siting, but solar will be much easier. (laughs) But uh, that's not the case. And so we really have to do a lot of um, outreach and relationship building and education about the impacts of solar development on the landscape. And and that's, uh, that's just another issue that I spend a lot of time on. So I have to talk about carbon pricing for a moment and get your opinions there, as I think it's fair to say that as the buyer-side mitigation discussion continues, there will be some more focus on carbon pricing. And you've been an advocate. You've been vocal. Your views on that, on carbon pricing in the markets and then economy-wide, because the front of our discussion, you were talking about electrifying different sectors and So when one thinks about that, economy-wide carbon price has to be part of the debate. Yeah, for sure. So that's right. ACE is supportive of carbon pricing at the ISO for a whole range of reasons. Um, You know, our member companies believe it's the right thing to do in terms of sending the proper price signals for getting renewables built. You know, I also, as I mentioned before, I have this perspective of having worked on renewables in New York for a long time. And even though there's so many wonderful signs, it's important to note that we haven't in the past met our renewable energy goals of 
First it was 25% and then 30% and we're still at about 27. So I mentioned that not to be a downer, but because any way of applying policy tools and aligning the investment signal is, is a good thing to do. And I think some advocates who are supportive of renewable energy might say, well, we don't need carbon pricing in the ISO market because now it's a mandate that we have to get this much renewables built. But, you know, I'm looking at it from a historical perspective. It's been a mandate in the past and not as strong as this one, but, you know, we didn't get there. So you really want to use all the tools in the toolbox to try to reach these clean energy goals. I just want to turn for a moment to a broader debate about reliability of the system going forward, because as you know, you know, our planning process is starting to uncover some questions about the 2030 and 2040 goals. There's plenty of folks who are pointing out that when we contemplate a system that's more reliant on intermittent technologies, we start to see a reliability gap or could if we don't start planning in different ways now. Besides, as you said at the beginning, the sheer volume and number of megawatts necessary to make up for what will likely be less of a reliance on the central station fossil fuel plants that we have now. When people start to point out the intermittency issue and tie it to reliability going forward, what do you see on the horizon as part of the answer? Well, I think there's a lot of different parts to it. I I think it would be a mistake for people to expect that there's going to be one answer to that question that's going to solve all reliability issues. And I don't doubt that New York State and all the stakeholders here are going to pursue lots of these. So to start off with, we need to have diverse renewable technologies. I think it's good to invest in wind, solar, small distributed solar, utility scale solar, offshore wind, and have those renewables be geographically dispersed across the landscape. I think it's really important to invest in storage. I think it's important to invest in the transmission system that we talked about before. Energy efficiency is also part of ACE's mission, and I think it would be very silly for the state not to invest as much as possible in all cost-effective energy efficiency. And then ways to have a dynamic load, demand response, and, and these are all things, all of the things I've listed are things that New York has worked on in one way or the other before, but we have to double down on all of that. And then we shouldn't fool ourselves, though, that if we do all of those things, we can reduce the amount of dispatchable emissions-free power we will need, but we won't eliminate it, I don't think. So it's incumbent upon New York, but probably equally importantly, the the federal government, to invest in some technologies, research and development for technologies to meet that gap. I know your projections showed that 10% of the power in 2040 would have to be that dispatchable emissions-free technology. Maybe it would be less than that if we invested in all the other things I listed, although maybe it'll be more than that if we fail to invest or fail to succeed in getting some of those transmission system investments that we need. I know, though, that ACE member companies are have expressed to me an interest in green hydrogen more than some of the other options that people are talking about. I think they're interested in, will there be an option in the future to use renewable electricity at times of low demand to produce hydrogen and then use that hydrogen later in fuel cells, for example? So I would say out of the various ideas that people throw around, like long-duration storage or renewable natural gas or 
other types of new fuels. It does seem to be from my members, there's the most interest in green hydrogen. And maybe that's because as renewable generators, they see a synergy there. But, you know, I think there's some expectation that that will be used more in the future. Well, Anne, I want to thank you for being with us today. Riveting discussion, free-ranging discussion. I think we got everything covered here, but uh, we'd like to reserve the idea of bringing you back later on in the year or early next year as maybe more progress is made on some of these issues. Thanks for joining us. Sure, my pleasure. I enjoyed it, and thanks for having me. Anne Reynolds, Executive Director of the Alliance for Clean Energy. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining us. As a reminder, the New York Independent System Operator, NISO for short, is responsible for reliably managing New York's power grid and energy markets and providing independent data to policymakers and the public. For more independent info, please visit the NISO blog at www.nyiso.com blog.